Hi, hey, Michelle. Hi. <laughs> this afternoon on Leaning In and Speaking Out, we are going to have a really interesting discussion about a student that was your student in a practicum, mm -hmm. doing a practicum about dystopian literature. Can you tell me a little bit about her practicum? Sure, yeah, so it's her name's Tanya Palasic, and I am not a instructor of dystopian literature, so it's not that connection that they made to me. But she was doing a practicum and really interested in how she could use storytelling hmm. and arts-based methods to be able to infuse hope into the things that she was seeing in her classroom. So she was having, she's taught the same unit often around that dystopian literature and found that her students were going to dark places. And so she thought, right. how can I teach this in such a way as it still honors literature, but doesn't end up being quite so gloomy about the future. And so the storytelling piece was where my connection was. And we did a lot of thinking about different ways to pull that literature into different directions. And she was absolutely wonderful to work with. Just a beautiful thinker and really thoughtful in how she engaged her students. And it was just a joy to work with her. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing her perspectives. I like the idea right off the top of like looking at something that is so dark and horrible and trying to find hope and joy within that. That's interesting. And we also have our colleague Jill, Jill Morris, and I love her work. She came to my classroom and talked to my students about her PhD work and I was fascinated. I've been thinking about it and talking about it ever since, and that was six months ago already. And I'll look forward to having her too. And she always makes really inspiring connections to different things that she hears. And so I think she'll have a great conversation with Tanya. I think so too. Both of them are really deep thinkers in the way they engage the world around them. And they both have a kind of wiring towards poetry, poetic inquiry, poetics, and I think that could be another interesting connection. And I feel like both of them are, I don't know what the right way to say this is, like slow in the way they chew on the things that they think about. Not in a bad way, like slow in producing things, not like that, but just thoughtful maybe, thoughtful. or... Yeah, Jill is definitely yeah. that. Yeah. And I don't know Tanya the same, Tanya yeah, the Tanya. same. Yeah, I appreciate that about them. I feel like f for me personally, that's not how I'm wired. I jump to conclusions too quickly or I jump <laughs> into things too quickly. And so when I am around people who are like, let's think about this for a minute. Let's open some space to have this curiosity or let's just wonder for a while. It always calms me down and I appreciate that. Yeah. And There's so room I like in our that world about, for both. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's, neither are good or bad. It's just we can learn from each other and work well together. I think. Okay, yeah. let's invite them in and yeah, let's, let's get going on with the conversation. Here we are with Jill and Tanya, and we're looking forward to a great conversation. 
I wonder if each of you could introduce yourselves. Jill, do you mind going first? Sure, I can start. My name is Jill Morris. I'm an assistant professor at Brandon University in the Department of Curriculum and Pedagogy. I have also had over 20 years as an English teacher in high school, and I am just finishing up my PhD. Yay! And Tanya? My name is Tanya Polasic. I am an English teacher for almost 20 years, and I am a graduate student here at Brandon, Brandon University in the Curriculum and Pedagogy stream. That's great. So I know, Tanya, you've been doing a practicum, and that kind of came out of what you were seeing in teaching dystopian literature in your class. So could you tell us a little bit about what you were noticing and then how that led into a practicum? I've been teaching a unit, and it's bounced around a little bit as far as the content, but essentially it was dystopian literature, and we had text around that. And then we had a pandemic, and that was a dystopian in <laughs> itself. And so coming back and having students still in, in the classroom, but in this strange state. So teaching a unit on the scary things in the world as those scary things are happening really forced me to take a look at what I was doing. And we, I talked to the students, is this something we want to do? I feel our lives are already so full of scary things and darkness. Do we want to walk down this path together? And they said overwhelmingly, yes. So that really affirmed the teaching of it. The students really were interested and they had good reasons for wanting to learn um, about dystopian literature. So for this unit, now I feel like we've come out, classes feel regular. And so for my senior students, as I was thinking about this, I really felt like they need more hope at the end of this journey and they need to be looking forward to things. So that's really what, what I wanted to explore during this practicum. Thank you. So Jill, you said you were almost finished your PhD. Can you describe your work a little bit for us? I could say that the experience is verging. It's, is it dystopic? Is it utopic? Where <laughs> am I with this experience of doing the PhD? But I will say a little bit, and I was thinking as you were talking, Tanya, about the experiences that you're having in the classroom, and really my PhD is about trying to find concepts and language and ways to talk about some of the things that happen in the classroom that are typically outside of our ability to express them. And so I'm interested in this idea of the students this hoping for more, this looking forward for more, and seeing it not in contrast, but that maybe the work that I've been doing is adding a texture to that in the sense that I think there's a lot going on in the classroom that is rich and meaningful and important. And that oftentimes when we're trying to cover like a curriculum, a formal curriculum, we lose sight of that. We lose sight of what Hubner calls the moreness of education. And so that's pretty much what my PhD is about, is trying to turn attention to that and trying to find language so that we can have conversations about things that often evade language. Thank you. I look forward to learning about that. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great concise summary of Last time we talked, I think it took about an hour for me to understand what, and you've 
boiled it down into, I hate the term elevator pitch, but that was a great <laughs> summary of what you're doing. Thank you. It, it, I think this is part of the process of getting a PhD is that you get better <laughs> and better at trying to express the ideas that you have. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So Tanya, you used a documentary in your class about joy and you noted in your journal that the character, the main character hadn't asked, how can I be happy? And it makes me wonder what questions we and our students could be asking instead when we're looking towards the future. The documentary was very interesting. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Mission Joy, but it's based on the book done by the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And it talks a lot and it just explores this relationship that they have and their approaches. They had a conversation and many different things were pulled out of it. And one was this documentary. And so when I'm thinking about, they talked about, and even my students in their responses, they were talking about happiness and joy are not the same thing. And when we seek happiness, it takes us on all the wrong roads and we end up empty at the end. So some of the questions that we've been thinking about is how can I care for others? What is this book teaching us? What can we learn from each other about what it means to be human? and living a more human experience. I've spent a lot of time in my practice over the last couple of years since I've started on this journey in my taking my master's degree. And it's really forced a pause and forced a step back to say, what am I curious about? And if I approach a situation, a learning situation, up at the front of the classroom, the hands go up and you pause and you really force yourself and force your students to get curious about what's happening, that's when the real conversations are starting. How can I approach this situation with curiosity? I think that can be a question that we can encourage students to ask. Great question. Do you have anything to add, Jill? I do have some thoughts on that. I'm thinking about how the way you're describing this, it's education as a human experience. And I'm afraid as a curriculum scholar that we there's a lot of conversation about this within the field. We seem to have gotten quite far away from that in terms of teacher education and in terms of the kinds of conversations that teachers are having in their classroom. They're driven to meet certain standards and certain outcomes. And you do that. I like that idea of that pause and that moment in the classroom where you go, what is this about? Oh, that's right. That's what this is about. It's that curiosity and that engagement of that human interest that that I see that as that connecting to that joy that I think your students are looking for and that you're looking for. Yeah. They talked so much about what is within. Joy comes from within. And so if we can pause and give them a moment and help them with the language, help mm. them with the thinking processes that lead them in instead of just always searching out, I think that that's been a major focus for this unit. I recognize that, but I also was struck by what you said when they posed the question of what about helping others? Because one of the other concerns that I have is that a lot of even our more progressive ideas about education, about self-discovery and self-esteem and this sense of, you know, finding yourself. And I think that can go wrong. It can cut things off. And so the other thing that I'm interested in my work is in the idea of really 
attending to the other so that the other is what pulls you out in a new way so that you're not saying how do I feel about this it's what is this eliciting in me and it just shifts it slightly so I think it's still inward work but it's not you the students trying to assert themselves in the world or on the world it's recognizing that they're part of the world and what is their place and how do they coexist and maybe they have a responsibility to respond to the world. Cool. So Tanya, you have woven music and art and storytelling and poetry into your plans. Why did you take that approach? And why do you feel that those things are so powerful in the face of dystopia? Multimodal approaches to literacy basically is the only way that I teach. I don't understand how we can just look at narrow text-based or even like specific types of text-based approaches to literacy. So weaving music and the playlist when we did, when students did their reflections, that the class playlist was one of the highest rated activities that we did. And it really got me, it, when I was thinking about it, it was, here comes the sun, the Beatles, boom. It came on uh, my playlist as I was sitting there thinking about this unit. And I said, of course, like that song communicates so much about what it means to be in darkness and then see the sun. Here comes the sun. And so sharing that with them and sharing the story and then having them each choose their own song to share with each other as the unit progressed, we would have two students each day share their song and share their reasons for selecting it. And then we have a whole class playlist that we've made up full of songs of hope. So they look back on that and those are some of their fondest memories. So infusing it with that and working on story sticks, actually we had our knowledge keeper come in and work us through the process of creating our own story sticks. So that was a really interesting experience for the students, ways to think metaphorically. So I thought... Will you talk more about that? What is a story stick? What is a story stick? <laughs> A story stick, from my very limited understanding, is a stick that can be used to just share the experiences. It's just a visual representation of the stories that you choose to share with others about your life. And it can be represented. We had different string and ribbons and little charms and all sorts of different little bits and pieces on the stick and then as you create it, it was a really reflective process for students to to sit and to think about what are the things that should go on my stick? What do I include? And then the other process of sharing the stick with others and it just provides a way to tell the story. These are the important things in my life, whether they're happy or they show my connection to other people or some events are tragic events and how this represents that and providing an opportunity to share those stories. It was an interesting experience. Thank you. Jill, you have an arts background too, right? Do you have any thoughts about arts in the face of dystopia? I think that art is something that provides a concrete way to work through some of these things that are too messy or too emotional or too abstract. And I really like this image of the stick. And I'm actually picturing a room full of students 
quietly wrapping things around and mm -hmm. making choices. And like, that's just a wonderful moment that's living in my head. Yeah, I think that art does something. So it's tactile and it's concrete, but it doesn't stay easily within borders. So it's like you can hold it, but the holding it isn't limited, if that makes any sense. So the stick is obviously something that they can manipulate and tell stories about, but it doesn't become a limit. I would argue that writing doesn't become a limit as well. Others maybe who are not English teachers might feel differently <laughs> about that, but any kind of an artistic enterprise, but I think even that tactile, put it in your hands but of an experience works really well for bringing that realization into the body for the student. And we did some work with image theater also, and that in their reflections, they commented on that quite a bit because most of them don't have a lot of experience with theater. Some do. I have, I also teach drama at my high school and we do production and through with an extracurricular group. But this was an opportunity to bring it right into the classroom. Mm -hmm. And with high school students, especially when they're in grade 12, they are thinking about the next step. And it's an exciting, but it's also a petrifying mm -hmm. time for them. And it's always this magical thing happens after spring break where they really come together. And now all of a sudden they're in a completely different headspace. So it was really a wonderful opportunity to have them look in, but also then look out at what it means to be a student, what it means to be moving on the next stages. What does the future look like? And then they created images about what does the future look like? And then they were adding themselves to this image and then they could see all sorts of very interesting perspectives of their classmates. That was the other thing mm -hmm. is that there's a collectivity mm -hmm. and a, the relationality of the art and sharing it with mm -hmm. others. Yeah. It was a really important, it was a really important piece was the sharing of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, like my personal reflections, just listening to you talk is that I've seen both of those things in my classroom. Like when I either from the perspective of teacher, when I use creative activities in my classroom or from my own perspective from doing artistic activities, I feel like I get to see the inside, that it gives a way for people to communicate their implicit knowledge rather than the knowledge that we make explicit all the time. I, yeah, it's good discussion. Yeah. Thank you. Does that get to the kind of something more that you're talking about in your yes. dissertation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because art is it's at the corner, right? It's just there, and it's and you said the sort of the implicit knowledge, and it also I think accesses what we don't know. We I agree. We have a sense of it. We're certainly experiencing something, but there's this great wealth of stuff that we can't know, right? Yeah. So Tanya, in your journal, you had said that you pulled a quote and printed it out mm -hmm. and put it beside your desk during this journey. And so I've printed it out here and I'll read it. But I'd like to know what it was that you found so compelling. And then Jill, feel free to chime in as well. Mm -hmm. So here's the quote. Cynical teachers find bias confirmation for their views about the unruliness of their charges with whom they read, not just 1984, but also Lord of the Flies. And young readers are thereby counseled to give up on ideals, to settle for modest reforms to the status quo. In this, we are lured into the fallacy of adaptive preference formation, 
where in confronting the failure to achieve, the ideal is recast as the inferior. The fox in Aesop's fable decides that the unattainable grapes are probably sour ones anyway. Well, by nature, I am a pessimist, I have to say. <laughs> but I've been married to an optimist for almost 20 years. And so to see that change in perspective and how by shifting your approach, you can see things in a different light has been really helpful. <laughs> I'm grateful for that opportunity so close at hand. And recently, I've really been trying to expose the hidden curriculum to my students. And I feel like this is the best way to do it at talking about my choices and making those very transparent and having discussions about them. And it's, why do we do Macbeth anyway? And it's, that's a very good question. And we can talk, I can talk them through my process going through it and they can share, I think we should do something else. And I love to have those discussions with students. And I'm a little bit worried that coming on 20 years, I'm getting a little bit cynical about the world. And I absolutely do not want to be, to be that dark, the world is terrible place type of voice for them as they are just stepping out from beyond our walls. I do not want to be that voice for them. And so I have to remind myself, what is it that, what is it that I want to stand for in the classroom? When they look back on their education, what is it I want them to have said they learned from me in their classroom? And I model my reading life and I share all of the things that I read and the ups and downs and the different genres and the different things I like to read. And I like to do the same with my thinking. Share with, open up, peel back the layer of what's going on inside my brain because it's a complex process. There are no easy right answers. And yeah, I don't want to be counseling them to give up on their ideals. So when you teach dystopia, that's, that can be a dangerous, can be a dangerous game. The world is like this. Watch out for the jacks of the world and Lord of the Flies. Watch out. That, so I don't want to counsel them to be naive, but I want to counsel them to be caring and curious. Along the journey of this practicum, your school went through a sudden loss. How did you negotiate with what you had planned to teach when that happened? The paradox of how sorrow opens you to hope and joy in the face of that sudden loss. How did you negotiate that space? It was quite devastating and to come to school the very next day and to stand up in front of students and to, oh yeah, when bad things happen we can, it opens us up to more joy. Ha, oh, look at us. <laughs> it was just such, it would have been such an insensitive and inappropriate way to approach things. So. Instead, I, and I think this was a good example of like my attempt to demystify the, my, my teaching is to stand up at the front and say, how do I do this? How do I stand up in front of you and talk about hope and joy when such a sad thing has happened? What do we do? How do we talk about this? How does our society and what we learn in society prepare us and help us approach grief? Where do we find the language? And I don't know that we do a very good job of that. And we talked about that as a class. What do we do? And some of them have been through very difficult experiences themselves. And so when I asked the question, who feels like 
they know what to do in this situation. Some of them put their hands up. How do we support a classmate? Some of them knew how. They felt they knew how. And so I, I took the opportunity to do what I could from my English language arts standpoint and how do you write a note of grief, a, a note of sympathy to a classmate? And we spent some time thinking and writing as a class. And that was my approach. Sad things happen in the world. And I don't have the answers, but we keep walking. We keep putting one foot in front of the other and we try to be, to care for each other. So when this happened in the school, how far along were you in the unit of study that you had started with the students? We were about three weeks in. Okay, just nicely unpacking a lot of the concept at mm -hmm. that stage. Did they pull on anything that you had been talking about when they began to address this? Absolutely, they did. They talked, we talked about the documentary a lot. We talked about, we were writing, we had a gratitude, a little gratitude journaling. The word is just a gratitude chart. Tracker, gratitude tracker. That they each kept individually? They each kept an individual yeah. gratitude tracker. Right. And this was, so how, we even talked about that. I don't know, like, these are things to be, there are, we all have many things to be grateful for. But it's really hard. There's also time for grief. There also is a time for sorrow. And to feel all of those feelings is human and necessary. How did you manage your emotions in the moment? I don't well, know. If I that's cried. Not, yeah, yeah. I cried in front of twenty-five kids. Yeah, because that's because it was really sad. That's part of you, you talked about revealing the process that you go through when you're making decisions about what you're teaching and how you're teaching it. This is also revealing your experience as a human being. Absolutely, and that is to be a teacher is to be so human, and mm. I think that. If we tell our teachers that's not true, if we tell our our new teachers coming in that it's not true, that we, you should stand up and just, yeah. I don't know. What else do you Did do? you ever get the advice, any of you have heard this in staff rooms, that don't smile yes. until Christmas? Absolutely. I have never heard never that. Heard that was <laughs> really? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. Common advice to new teachers. Mm -hmm. We're black. And, and the mm -hmm. sense is that... To it, be serious? Yep, and, and yes. that they are going to take you and seriously firm. if you don't show warmth and humor and mm -hmm. care wow. what a what an interesting message to send right yes. yeah uh, yeah but how many people are still receiving that message how many people live by that message in the classroom yep yeah that's not my approach my approach is when i have teachers coming in to learn doing their practice teaching you have to find out who you are. Mm. I can show you what I do. I can give you all kinds of books to read and make suggestions. But who you are is what kind of teacher you are. That sounds like Palmer to me. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite. I know. Yeah. So we've talked about a lot of different things in this conversation. And Jill, as a philosopher... I have of... to stop you. I'm not really a philosopher. <laughs> oh. I use philosophy. Okay. But there's just so much tied to this moniker <laughs> of philosopher that I don't mm. feel like I could take that on. Okay. <laughs> I appreciate it, though. We could rephrase it. As someone who enjoys philosophy. Yes. Okay. Yes. That fits? Yeah. Okay. I wonder 
how you think about making meaning in the kinds of things that we've discussed. We talked about grief, we've talked about hope, we've talked about moving into the future and how students might imagine those futures, dystopia, utopia, hmm. other ways of looking forward, and then how that might relate to a working definition of curriculum. Is that too much for one question? There's a lot in there, and I think the influence of too much philosophy <laughs> is that I'm like, oh, I have questions about what you mean by the future. Questions about your questions. <laughs> exactly. So curriculum is, curriculum is lived. That's my understanding. It's a very Aokian kind of notion of what a curriculum is. But as Tanya and I both know, initially when folks hear the word curriculum, they do think document and they do have this sort of like sense of this is, this has been written down and now we can then meet these expectations. So I think that a lot of your instincts as a teacher and recognizing education as human, there's no other way to think about curriculum except in that sort of excess, that way of living your truth in the moment with, with students, right? That's the curriculum. Here's this wonderful moment. It's not always happy, or but it's definitely always rich. And I wonder what would be possible if we were able to have more of those conversations in teacher education and in staff rooms, that maybe it would be easier for, for teachers to be their full selves. And maybe there's conversations about how are new teachers managing the stresses of the classroom. And I think one of the reasons that there is so much stress is that they feel like they can't be themselves that they've got to try and manage all of this with half of their sensibilities. I can't do that. Or if you do it, you end up with this really monstrous moment, right? Where you're pushing ahead to meet some expectation or fulfill some kind of requirement when your students are grieving. I think you're right. I think that when I'm teaching teacher candidates, one of the things that I have trouble helping them to get onto the page with is really thinking about just being themselves in the classroom. You talked mm -hmm. about that. And so in my background here, I've taught classroom management many times. And it's one of the things that I always try to start them with is that you have to know yourself deeply and you have to create the environment in your classroom where you're at the top of your game because that's going to be a great place for you to be every day and you'll be the best for your students if you can find that in your classroom and that you should be open with them and that they should understand why your classroom runs that way and if you want things really structured you should explain to them that it's because that's what works for you if you want things open you should explain to them that's what works for you that they're pretty resilient in moving from one space to another and understanding that things are different in those spaces, but that we each have to find ourselves as teachers and that that has to be expressed or will always be expressed in our teaching. But for them, they're really uncertain about that role and there's so much sort of society pressure to reach the bar, to control the classroom to make sure that your students excel in learning and that's really scary for them and so then they want the answer 
They do. But how am I going to do it, Jackie, <laughs> is what they're really pressuring me for. Mm -hmm. And we're always in that tension between those two spaces with them. And I think as we learn and grow and change as teachers, most of us come to understand that's if you are going to stay with it, you have to be comfortable in that space. I'm just thinking about philosophy <laughs> again. Of course. So I, I, this idea of maybe turning the notion of uncertainty and seeing it as a plus, right? So that the certainty that a lot of teachers have that cements them into a particular way of viewing the future, the curriculum, or any of those things. And there's an uncertainty that if we could frame it as wonder, then that might open some things up for a student teacher or a student in a classroom is that not knowing is a mark of a generous mind. And that's something that I think, because it's hard when you're in a professional program like teacher education, you do want to learn how to do it. And when you're in the classroom, you feel like all of this responsibility is landing on you. But yeah, so there's a refiguring, right? That it's that there's a strength and there's an openness and there's a possibility in this not knowing. I'm not suggesting that's an easy thing to help no. teacher candidates <laughs> no, come to terms right, with. Though. But, yeah. I think you're right, though. And one of the things that I've learned about tension, and we talked about, I, and it was in my curriculum foundations class, It, she said tension means pay attention. Like when you see, when you have tension, that is a good opportunity to pause and actually really pay attention to what's going on. And Jackie, you talked about finding yourself as a teacher. And I think that sometimes they expect to just know. It is a journey. You do find yourself. And who I was when I first started is not who I am now. <laughs> and that's wonderful because <laughs> You, but you can't just fast forward. All of the life and all of the faces that I've seen and the papers I've read and the classes I've worked with have led me here. And there's only one way to get here. And you only know the path by looking backwards. So it's a journey. And I know it sounds cliche to say that, but I think students, if they're willing to see it as this sense of wonder and that they are wonderful that's just it's they they are that's the potential the potential is the wonder yeah i think that's a really beautiful place to start wrapping up the only last question might be if you were to come up with a title for this podcast what would you call it based on the things that we've talked about was that on a list? It was an unscripted question. Oh, We're leaving weird. space for wonder and curiosity. <laughs> Do you want to write a poem? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like hope. I feel like curiosity. Those are some of the themes that mm. popped out for me. Where does dystopia sit now? Do you know what I mean? Like I feel mm -hmm. like we've come to this place mm -hmm. where I'm, maybe I don't see the value in reading these dystopic mm. books anymore. And it's interesting because they talk about, in all the things that they liked, one of the least was the actual reading of the book. <laughs> it was everything else. So they liked thinking about the book. They liked writing about and reflecting on the book. They liked discussing the book with their classmates. They liked pairing different poems to the book. But they didn't really like reading the book. For some of them that read 
1984. I really like that. So I don't know. Maybe I wish I had something pithy to put on the table, but I don't think I do. Do you feel like the book or dystopia in general became the kind of fertile ground that these other things grew out of? I think so. Yeah. On some level, it doesn't really matter what your content is. It's about the conversations that happen in response to it. I was going to say that too. Mm -hmm. I think it's about your invitation Mm -hmm. to look for hope Mm -hmm. and joy despite the bad story that leads it to a different place. Because of the bad story. Mm -hmm. Oh, because of that. Yeah. Yeah. But rather than sinking into that to understand that you can look for something positive out of it. Invitation to joy. Oh, I love it. There we go. See? Way with words. Collaborative. That was Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone, for coming on the podcast called Invitation to Joy. Thanks for having me.